Destination Eat Drink is up next. But first, listen to this great other show on the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. I am Howard Sudbury. And I'm Steve Baskerville. And on Back to You, our podcast, we do all kinds of things like, how would you describe it? We do nitpicky things sometimes, like how come you got headphones on and I don't? Because I'm the star of the show. Well, see, that's up for uh, debate and deliberation. And uh, a lot of the show is about who gets top billing and last word. Well, we'll find out on the next Back to You with Howard Sudbury. And Steve Baskerville. See ya. Bye. Back to You with Howard Sudbury and Steve Baskerville. An OPI show, only on the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. Great talk radio isn't dead. It just moved a better place. Radiomisfits.com. A monster sandwich. Little plates that definitely aren't tapas. And famous port wine. This week, we're in Porto, Portugal. Traveling the world to bring you delicious dishes, tasty beverages, and interesting experiences. This is the Destination Eat Drink Podcast on the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. I'm Brent Peterson, host of Destination Eat Drink, the travel podcast for foodies. Each week, we talk about unique dishes to try, drinks to sample, and fun things to do in a different foodie hotspot. This week, we're in northern Portugal and the city of Porto. But before we get started, let me remind you to subscribe to Destination Eat Drink wherever you get podcasts, be it Apple, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, Spotify. Subscribe and get a new tasty destination each Friday. Now, when it comes to Portugal, Lisbon gets all the press. And don't get me wrong, I love Lisbon. We'll do a show on Lisbon sometime in the future. But Porto is an incredible city as well that sometimes gets overlooked. When I was in Porto this summer, the first thing I did was take a food tour. Andre Apolinario was our guide. And Andre was a civil engineer by trade, but his passion for food couldn't be denied. So a few years ago, he, along with a few friends, founded Taste Porto, a food tour company that treats visitors to the best of Porto. And Andre's passion for his hometown was infectious. By the end of the tour, I was ready to pack it up and rent an apartment on the riverside. So after I got home, I was happy to catch up with Andre and talk to him about his favorite topics, Porto and food. Destination, eat, drink. Andre, I love Porto, but I think most Americans probably are not familiar with Porto, but it has so much to offer. Can you tell us, um, as we start out here, just a few of the can't-miss things that uh, people should do when they come to visit Porto for the first time? Okay, we'll do. I have to say that, of course, that I'm biased, but I feel that it's one of the most beautiful cities I've ever been. And it's definitely the city that I love the most. It's over 900 years old and you can feel the echoes of uh, our background, our history, talking to you on a daily basis while you walk in the city. And that's one of the things that I most recommend people to do. Porto is such a beautiful and walkable city that you can go to almost uh, all the most important uh, venues in town just by walking through them. One of my favorites is the iconic Rivaira, the, the riverside neighborhood, where you can take a look at the UNESCO World Heritage Site uh, neighborhood. You can take a look at the Iron Bridge, uh, Luis Primeiro. Uh, 
out of the embankment, seeing all of those colorful, uh, colorful houses. It's just dazzling beautiful. Uh, from there, exploring the old medieval side of the city from the river towards uh, the train station, Sombian, to which I have to say, as soon as you walk inside that place, be prepared. Your breath will be taken away. The tiles, uh, the bustling energy of a train station, it's just tremendous. But taking a look at those tiles, as lasers, as we call it here, um, will sweep you off your feet. Uh, from there, I would say walk uphill towards the, the university and towards Clerigus Tower and the bookshop, Lelo. Uh, you will be sure to see Lelo from a distance because of the huge crowd standing outside. There's always a line. There is always a line. Actually, a few years ago, uh, I posted a photo of Lelo around 7 a.m. in the morning. So no one up front and I said, oh, my God, there's no line to get in at Lelo. <laughs> the one time. <laughs> but I have to say one thing. Uh, yes, it will be crowded. But I'm a fan of architecture. And I have to say that place is absolutely gorgeous. Walk in. Take a, it's a neo-Gothic architecture, 1906. It's just gorgeous. It's so worthwhile going in, definitely. Me being a, a fan of architecture, I would say visit some of the historical cafes of the city like Guarani or Majestique, which is the crown jewel of cafes in, in, in Porto uh, from the 1920s. You actually feel like you're walking back in time uh, with the exuberance of the architecture there. And although it sounds like it's not something you can do, um, go to the ocean side of the city. It's not that far away. It's actually roughly four kilometers away from the city center. Beautiful. The architecture changes dramatically. You can go into the Fisherman's Cove of Cantareira and then the Atlantic Ocean right in front of you. Believe me, it's so worthwhile going there. And there's a plus. Uh, not that far away from there, you can go into the fishing village of Matuzinhos, the city immediately north of Porto, where you can get some of the best shellfish you'll ever have. And I come back to food at all times. Oh, my God. Of course. Of course. So so let's break down a couple of those uh, spots that you mentioned, Andre. First of all, the train station. And I want to make sure I pronounce this pr properly. São Bento. São Bento. That's perfect. And this train station on the inside is, well, the outside is beautiful, but on the inside, it is absolutely magnificent because the the lobby, the main area, the waiting area is decorated 360 degrees all the way around with the famous Portuguese tiles. Talk about the uh, layout of the tiles at the train station. To do so, I'll have to take you back to 1916. Uh, that Actually, this week on Saturday... Uh, we're going to celebrate the 102nd anniversary of that train station. It opened in 1916, inaugurated on October 5th, 1916. Back then, the, the architect, Marcos da Silva, truly talented architect, actually, I would have to say, likely to be one of the most influential architects of the city, invited uh, a Lisbon artist, Jorge uh, Glasso, that led a team of painters that painted the 25,000 tiles in the train station. Wow. Um, they were end painted in Lisbon, uh, glazed in Lisbon, and then brought to Porto and placed individually on the walls. 
It's a gigantic 25,000 pieces puzzle. My personal record is no more than 400. <laughs> and I have to say it's gorgeous. The, if you, as soon as you walk in, take a look at the lower panels in blue and white, and you'll see scenes from Portuguese history, our lifestyle. But then if you move your eyes up, in colors, you'll see the evolution of transportation, which is it goes from Roman chariots all the way to the to the train. So it's absolutely beautiful. I love it. And, you know, it's we can talk about this, but I, I don't think words can actually do justice to when you walk in there and your jaw just hits the floor because it is absolutely mind blowing what is what is going on in that train station um talk about because these portuguese tiles are so important to the culture of portugal and not only will you see them in the train station but you see them on facades of churches you see them on apartment buildings why why are the tiles so important to portuguese culture well first of all they're a tremendous heritage a mixed heritage from Initially from Moors, so the Moorish occupation of the peninsula brought here their tile-making tradition. Uh, we fell in love with it, let's put it like that, in a rather romantic way. Then we traveled the world from the 15th century onwards. We got all the way to China, and over there, we learned with the Chinese the, uh, the technique of using cobalt blue to paint tiles, glaze them, and then use them in the most varied ways. We took it to uh, another level. We mixed both traditions. You can now see tiles on facades with shapes, with different colors. Um, it's a really tremendous way of um, ornamenting a building. It's, as you can see at the train station, it's mind-blowing, as I said. It's jaw-dropping, definitely. But it's also a fantastic way of waterproofing your facades. <laughs> it is, really. Actually, Porto is quite rainy, uh, actually almost rainier than London. So it rains a lot over here. Uh, tiles, they endure that. Um, you will see tiles in facades of buildings in Porto um, easily from the 19th century, and they're still out there. Um, so it's a rather efficient way of also waterproofing your facades. I and mean, come on, they're dazzling. They're beautiful, and I never thought of that waterproofing, but that glazing would be watertight and it would keep it out. And not only will you see it in places like churches and the train station and places like that, but just regular apartment buildings will be decorated yeah. with the uh, with the tiles. It's really spectacular. And that's I think that leads to um, your point, which I agree with wholeheartedly. Wander Porto. Wander the streets because you never know what you're going to stumble upon. It's not just a recommendation. It's my way of walking in the city, always with my nose going upwards, trying to take a look at the details uh, on the facades of buildings, you will find amazing things. And I have to say, every single day while walking on the streets of Porto, I find a new detail in a building that I've gone past hundreds, if not thousands of times. And that's why I love Porto so much. There's always a new date, detail. It's like the city unveils itself to you uh, slowly, uh, step by step. Lovely. Andre, let's talk about food, your passion, my passion. I um, just love in Porto going to a place that has uh, petiscos. Now, describe petiscos. What are they? Um, where, where are the best places to get them? What we can expect when we order this? Okay, so first of all, uh, if and when someone says to you that 
but these who are the Portuguese tapas, they couldn't be further from the truth. <laughs> right. Uh, <laughs> tapa is uh, a Spanish gastronomical tradition, a tremendous one, by the way. Um, the word tapa comes from the verb tapar, to cover, something that you can put on bread to cover a glass of wine. A tradition that comes from medieval days and that they've turned it into a Michelin star level uh, nowadays. It's fantastic. But a petisco is going for a, a Portuguese main course, turn it into a smaller portion so that on a table uh, with four people, you would ask for five, six of them and everyone would share. So it's a communal way of eating. Um, I would even say if I'm having a dinner party at home with some friends of mine, close friends, I would say, hey, each one of you would bring a, a patishku and we'll share food over here. Um, I love this communal way of uh, eating food. It's, it's fantastic. Everyone will bring the best of what they know how to cook, of what they love to the table. So sharing food will be definitely sharing your life and sharing love with the, the ones closest to you. I would say that there are a number of places in town that you can go for. Um, I would definitely try and look for the old tavern, places like uh, Alfredo Portista, but places, newer places that have brought Petisco uh, back to life on a more hip way. I would say Tashka or Tashko, where you can have a sit-down uh, dinner with nothing but Petiscos coming your way. And for me, some uh, so you say they're they're smaller versions of normal dishes, so you can expect all kinds of different kind of petisco. My favorite are some of the simplest, like just some sliced tomato in some wonderful uh, Portuguese olive oil with a little bit of dried oregano and salt sprinkled on top, and I can enjoy that with a glass of wine and be happy uh, with a little bowl of olives next to it. Oh, me too. Believe me, but I'd have to say that there are a few other that I recommend. So, for instance, uh, muelas. Uh, so, at, at some point, I'll I'll have to be a bit hardcore on uh, Portuguese food. So I'm going to start here with muelas. So the chicken gizzards, slowly stewed uh, in tomato sauce and uh, piri piri chili peppers, spicy. Uh, to start off a meal, they're fantastic because. Uh, they will open your appetite, they're clean, they're cleanse your palates, and they'll bring that spiciness that will make you want to drink um, a glass of wine or a, or a beer to go along with. Um, one other that I love, uh, octopus salad. Oh, very famous. Oh, it's so good, so fresh. Summertime, an octopus salad with some uh, green and red bell peppers, olive oil. Oh, I'm mouth-watering here, my God. Uh, so olive oil, uncooked olive oil, uh, maybe some onions and a bit of garlic in. Ah, oh, it's so delicious. That's the thing about this podcast, Andre. You'll get hungry, I'll get hungry, and everyone that listens will get hungry. <laughs> good. That's good. That's a good sign. <laughs> Whenever you wander around Porto, you'll see cafes and restaurants always have this sandwich um, in Porto. And it's starting to bleed out into other areas in Portugal. When I was in Lisbon, I actually saw this sandwich, and I'm going to try and pronounce it Francesquina. 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 This thing Perfect. is a monster. 
<laughs> it's, it's, it's huge. Describe what this sandwich is, what's in it, and what makes it different going from restaurant to restaurant, cafe to cafe. Okay, Francesinha is, I'm going to call it a tiny sandwich, just a tease, <laughs> uh, that in, be in between two loaves of bread, you get 3,000 calories, roughly. So we're talking about uh, a huge load of food. So uh, nowadays, it comes with grilled rump steak. Uh, three different kinds of uh, charcuterie, so a chorizo, a regular pork and wine sausage, and two fresh sausages. One of them, the famous linguiça, with lots of spices in. Uh, ham, and then everything covered with melted cheese, uh, an hot gravy sauce, and if you want to go full on, a fried egg and some fried potatoes to go along with it. <laughs> of course. What would it be without French fries? Um, so the... Although I have to say, if you want to go without the fries and the egg, it comes down to mild 2,500 calories. Oh, that's all. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so you can share with your entire family. Now, what, what I heard uh, people in these restaurants saying was the difference, the main difference, of course, is what comes inside it. But also, people will go to specific restaurants because of the sauce that goes on top of the sandwich. What are the different uh, variations of this sauce that goes on top? You know, it really depends on uh, who's making it, you know. For instance, uh, the base of it would, would definitely be... Uh, a tomato sauce based salsa okay but then uh, we add beer uh, some people my mom for instance likes to have a dash of port wine in it uh, some like to cook that sauce with just sun-dried uh, chili peppers uh, others prefer fresh chili peppers uh, there's and there's a, a wide range of variations of it but the base of it it's a beer uh, and tomato sauce base. Uh, for instance, my mom loves to cook that with some of the sausages that she's then going to use to grill for the sandwich. She cooks some of them in the sauce as well to bring those extra savory flavors to it. Okay. Um, yeah, and everyone has their own recipe. It's, some people take it to the extent that they don't share their recipe with no one. <laughs> <laughs> They'll even say to you, yeah, you know what? You should add some asparagus to the sauce just to deceive you, just obviously. <laughs> throw people off. <laughs> this this sounds very this sounds very reminiscent of uh, some Italian parents that I've heard that uh, don't like to share their recipes either. It's so flavorful and it can turn a sandwich into something uh that sandwich, which is definitely a monster into something really flavorful and delicious. Andre, one of my favorite things to have in Porto is caldo verde, which is a soup type dish. What's uh, what is caldo verde? Describe it for our audience. And where's the best place to get a good bowl of caldo verde in Porto? So that thing is just potato, uh, olive oil, some onions and garlic. Uh, boil that. Prepare a puree afterwards with all of that and then just add shredded kale on top. As simple as this. Uh, the kale is only added at the very final stages uh, of the preparation of that soup. And when you bring it to the table, uh, we just slice uh, shorizo and we put a few slices uh, on that bowl as well. 
I, it's so smooth, so delicious, um, and it's really easy to to prepare. Um, best place to have it. Uh, I would go for those old school traditional restaurants. Um, look, one of my favorites for a caldo verde is Abadia. Um, the menu of that place is like a collection of the most traditional Portuguese main courses. And obviously that no meal in this country starts without a bowl of soup. And definitely that over there, they excel at their caldo verde. One of my favorite places you took us to, Andre, was the Ball Hallow Market. Uh, help me pronounce that, please. Okay, so I'm going to do it slowly because this is a toughie. Uh, Bullion. Market. I wasn't Bullion. even close. I was <laughs> not even close. So, so th this market's been around forever in Porto, but it's undergoing a renovation now. So they've moved it into a temporary place, but mm -hmm. it's still fantastic, even though it's in a different location while it undergoes this renovation. Talk about the market and some of the vendors that are there and what people can expect when they go to the market. Well, as you as you pointed out, uh, the original building is under renovation. Hopefully, next year it, it will reopen. Uh, the mayor, uh, asked to vote for what he did there. He invited uh, the vendors that were left at the market to stay in a temporary venue for the time being of the renovation. Sixty of them agreed on going there. You'll find from fishmongers to butchers. Uh, wine shops, uh, vegetables, fruit stands, uh, some restaurants there, cheese, uh, dry nuts. You, you, look, you name it, you can do your own grocery store, your, your grocery shops there, and you'll have everything and you'll live and have time to sit down to enjoy some food there. Um, for instance, one of the butchers there, uh, Leandro, is the one that supplies, I don't know, maybe... 80% of restaurants downtown with the sausages for Francesinha. Uh, just across the hall from him, uh, two places, Luisa, that makes, prepares my favorite uh, tripas. So pork intestines stuffed with flour, black pepper, and cumin. I just love that stuff. Um, and Lucas, that has one of the most amazing collections of cured meats in the market. The presunto that he has there is just absolutely astonishing delicious. Um, one of the stops that I I always like to go through the the fish section of the market. Just talking with those fishmongers, it's so much fun. Look, it's talking with them. It's like first of all, it's it's gonna be rowdy. It's gonna be fun. It's gonna be upfront, and you get to learn so much about fish culture just talking with those ladies. They'll teach you everything from how to get the fish to how to prepare the fish and how to cook it. Um, they're like walking food encyclopedias, I would say. There's also lots of fresh produce there as well. So if you're planning on making your own meal or going on a picnic or something, we had the most fantastic cheese 
when uh, you took us to the market. It was amazing. Great wine. But my favorite memory of going into that market was you took us to one of your favorite produce vendors, and they just have stacks and stacks of fresh fruits and vegetables. And you're explaining the different uh, varieties of melons and different fruits and pears uh, that are available in um in Porto, in the Duro Valley. And then all of a sudden, the lady who's in charge, I don't know if she was a cashier, she owns the place, but she came over and you two got into a little uh, tit for tat uh, in Portuguese. I couldn't understand what you were saying, but it was obviously very heated. I'm like, why is Andre arguing with this woman? And afterwards you came over and you said, yeah, uh, we had a disagreement about the football match last night (laughs) because you root for one football team. She roots for the other football team. Football is so important in Portugal, in Porto. Who's your team? Oh, so I'm a huge, gigantic FC Porto fan. Uh, so ever since 1995 that I'm a season ticket holder uh, at the stadium. Uh, my, As I usually say, my heart is blue and white all the way. Um, and she's a Benfica supporter. Benfica is a team from Lisbon. Ah. And the night before that, we had trashed their team in Lisbon. <laughs> so I was pretty happy about it. And she knew that. So she was rather unhappy about it. She was saying that we we strike lucky there. And I was saying to her, no, we didn't. We're just better. <laughs> <laughs> it was great. It was it was one of the highlights of the uh, of the tour for us. It was really uh, a look into real Porto and Portuguese culture and really enjoyed it a lot. Um, I think if Americans know one thing about Porto, it would be port wine, this fortified wine that is famous coming out of Porto. Talk about, for folks who don't know how exactly, what exactly is in port wine and why it's so famous for this region of Portugal, talk about port wine a little bit, Andre. I'm, I'm a big fan of the beverage. Uh, port wine is... Uh a fortified beverage. So um, a wine in which the fermentation process is stopped at the second day uh, with the addition of a distilled wine, almost like a cognac, that is added on a 20% ratio, turning the alcohol content of the mix way above uh, 15%, actually closer to 20%, which uh, does not allow yeast to continue fermentation. So fermentation stops there. Uh, but this this technique is not something exclusive to port wine. So what the secret relies not just on the technique, but also on terroir, uh, soil, the climate of the region, and the grapes used in them. The soil is schist or shale that does not keep water at surface, but it will work as a thermal wheel storing the heat of the sun throughout the day and then releasing it slowly overnight. Um, additionally, um, the region Douro Valley, which is starts roughly 100 kilometers east of Porto, uh, it's really dry. Uh, summertime, the temperatures will go ramping up, uh, taking vineyards into hydric stress due to the shortage of water. The vineyards adapted, uh, less grapes per square kilometer tiny, tiny grapes um, to be water efficient, thicker skins, 
the vineyards, they will have their roots going 30 to 50 meters below surface to get the water that is infiltrating. And then the uniqueness of these, of these grapes. Douro is home to almost, I don't know, maybe 90 different kinds of grapes unique to Portugal. Uh, names like Toriga Nacional, Toriga Franca, Tinta Roriz, Tinto Cão, Códiga, uh, Viozinho, Malvazia, Rabigato. And I know that these names sound like, I don't know, ancient Greek to your ears, but uh, they're unique. They're what makes uh, port wine so special. This mix of grapes, soil, climate, and technique. It's a, uh, a really diverse beverage in the sense that you can drink um, whites, tawnies, rubies, and then you can go for the special uh, ones. Like uh, There are aged whites, aged tawnies, and the special rubies, amongst which the late bottled vintages and the vintages. Those ones are the ones that uh, they're so special that I usually describe them to be called a vintage. It has to be approved by a, a panel of experts and they will decide whether the grapes in that wine um, were caressed by angels that year. <laughs> if Very good. They will be vintage. If not, they will be dimmed down to a lit bottle vintage, which I have to say, it's still pretty amazing. And one of the things about port wine is that Often some of the best ones are aged for a long period of time. You can find a 30-year port, a 40-year port. It's, it's a rather expensive endeavor at times. But if you can just get like one glass or one taste, it's definitely worth it. I would, yeah, and actually it, it's so complex. You can use it as an appetizer beverage. Look, preparing a Porto tonic, dry white port, tonic water, um, ice cubes, lemon zest, and mint, you got yourselves the most amazing cocktail. It will help you cook even better afterwards. <laughs> uh, then, look, uh, I'm a big fan of lit bottle vintages. They're so amazing. Getting them with uh, a dark chocolate dessert, or my favorite, with Stilton cheese. Oh, dear Lord. Oh, perfect. Uh, yeah, and those ones, for instance, the, the lit bottle vintages and the vintages are the ones that you age in the bottle. So... You will be able to find a vintage or a late bottle vintage from the 1920s, 1910s, 1900s. So they, those ones, obviously, they will be expensive, uh, but they will be an experience to your palate. They will be tremendous. Andre, you talked about the vineyards being in the Douro Valley, which are east up the Douro River. But... The, all the major port houses are literally along the waterfront across the river from Porto. So if you're sitting on the riverfront in Porto, you can look across and you can see all these famous names that if you have any experience with port wine, you recognize them, Taylor and Sandman and, you know, the, the rest of them that are all over there. And Folks can go visit those port wine houses. What's your suggestion for someone who wants to dig a little bit deeper, learn a little bit more about port wine as far as visiting uh, port wine houses or visiting tasting rooms? I recommend that you do both, that you visit one of the big port wine houses and then go to a small tasting room in which you will get uh, in contact with small scale port wine makers. Um, I would start with the big names, though. I'll go to places like Graham's, Coburn's, Ferreira, uh, Ramos Pinto, um, for a, an initial approach. Okay, uh, it, 
you can even choose the rarity of the wines that you sample at the end of a tour. But go and understand uh, why uh, those houses exist across the river in Gaia. Sample their wines. And then there's a, a wine shop downtown Porto called Toriga, uh, in which a talented, talented young man, a uh, gentleman called David, uh, owns a shop called uh, Toriga that he looks specifically to have a selection of uh, small-scale port wine producers. Those guys, they are producers and bottlers. So all of the grapes that they use for their port wine is from their own estate. Uh, so they don't buy grapes, which the big labels will do. They will buy grapes from small farmers. Right. These guys at Toriga are producers and bottlers. It's it will widen and deepen your knowledge about port wine, having these two views into that amazing beverage. I, I think for Americans, we think of port wine as simply a beverage. If, if we know about port wine at all, we think of port wine as a beverage to have with dessert, uh, with your chalk, with your piece of chocolate or your chocolate cake, like you mentioned. And you can do that. But port wine is so much more versatile than that. You can enjoy it before dinner. You can enjoy it with dinner. You can enjoy it after dinner because there's lots of different kind of taste profiles with the port wine. It's not strictly sweet wine. Yeah, fully agree. For instance, pairing a, a vintage or a lit bottle vintage with a wild boar stew as a main course. It's something uh, spectacular. Going for olives and a 10-year-old port as an appetizer. Delish. Um, look, it's, it's such a robust beverage that nowadays fancier restaurants, Michelin star-like restaurants, try to use port wine, all, the, all different kinds of port, as their cocktail base as well, uh, to go along with some of the main courses, and definitely as a dessert. Actually, I have to say, um, I don't have much of a sweet tooth, really, but after a meal, to go along with my coffee, I would definitely use as a dessert a glass of a 30-year-old Tony Port. That's dessert on its own. I was not familiar with the other types of wine from the Douro Valley before I went to Portugal. I knew Port, and we've had uh, and we drink Vino Verde often here in the U.S. But I didn't realize the scope of the wine region of the Douro Valley, all different kinds. You mentioned the different kinds of grapes, but the different kinds of wine styles that you make. There's plenty of dry reds and whites available as well, some rosés too. Talk about the different wines and maybe mention a couple of your favorite wineries from the Douro Valley. Yeah, will do. Um, look, Douro is unique. Depending on which direction the slope is, facing, if it's northbound, southbound, uh, you'll have different sun exposures. That will immediately change the profile of the wine that you're, you're going to end, end up with. Um, there are amazing winemakers up in the Douro Valley that have uh, transformed uh, winemaking traditions uh, up there. You can now drink dry or sweet wines. Uh, the reds can be quite dry and fresh, light concentration. Uh, the whites with beautiful acidity in. Um, and they're far more than just that. those 
high concentration, full-bodied reds that we were used to in the past. Uh, you can drink reds that start at 12% in alcohol content and they go up to uh, sometimes 18 due to the sugar content of those grapes. But it's they're so beautiful. They're so vibrant. Um, there's a winemaker that I'm a huge fan of, uh, a gentleman called Luis Yabra. Um, in Portugal, the guy is completely below radar, but uh, for wine, wine lovers in Portugal, the guy makes amazing whites and reds in the Douro Valley. Uh, truly fantastic reds. Um, I'd have to say that uh, there's also guys like small projects like uh, Quinta do Popa, uh, those guys, brother and sister, Stefan and, and Vanessa, also delivering amazing whites and amazing reds. Um, I don't know, the guys from Lavanu also making really exciting and vibrant red wines to go along with. I could, I, I could talk for hours about wine, so stop me whenever you want. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I think, I think this is the thing is what I was saying, the Portuguese profile of wine is so vast and we don't know enough about it here in the United States. And I am definitely going to linger much longer in the aisle of the Portuguese wines in my local liquor store than I have in the past, instead of just grabbing a bottle of Vino Verde or maybe grabbing a bottle of port for dessert, going to Porto just opened my eyes to the vastness of this wine region. Actually, let me add upon that that north of Portugal is blessed. The country is unique in the sense that in terms of wine regions, we have over 20 control designation of origin ones. Vinho uh, Verde, Douro, Alentejo, they're likely to be the most well-known outside of Portugal, but Dão, Bairrada, Colares, uh, Madeira, you have so many wines to choose from, so different in their profiles. Lisboa, Valdotej, Setúbal. It's, it's an endless source of uh, wines with different profiles, and they're so, so beautiful. Um, if you end up coming back to Porto, there is w one place that I love going to, that I recommend everyone to go to. Uh, due to the diversity of wines that they have there in display, a place called Prova. The winemaker is a retired mechanical engineer, uh, my age, um, that uh, opened this wine bar out of his love for wine and jazz music. A tremendous place just to chill out at the end of the day. And he has wines from almost every single wine region in the country. So you can be, it's, you're sure to go on a curated approach over Portuguese wines. And you can ask away, look, I'd like a dry red from the country. And you'll bring you a few ones from all over the, the country. Just choose your profile. Uh, you'll be sure to have. And it has been the place where I've been learning the most about um, Portuguese, Portuguese wines. And what's the name of this place, Andre? Prova. P-R-O-V-A. Prova. Very good. We'll, we'll be stopping on our next trip to uh, Porto at that place. You took us to this wonderful little cafe that served a liqueur called Singaverga. Singaverga. Um, Beautiful. And I did some, after I got home, because I love this little liqueur so much, I did some research on it. And there is such a fascinating story about how this liquor is produced and who produces it. 
Would you like to tell that story? Yeah, of course. It's, uh, you know, it's quite unique. Uh, still today, uh, a liqueur being prepared in a monastery, a Benedictine monastery uh, in a small village close to Porto. One of those echoes from, from the past. Um, still made nowadays by monks. It's a double distillation beverage with spices, aromatic herbs, uh, bound to be balsamic to you. It comes with 30% in alcohol content, so it's also a bit of a kick, I would say. <laughs> but it's actually with those uh, spices and aromatic herbs, it's somehow smooth to go along. It's almost like go having a dessert and then just a tiny wee bit of that to go with a dessert, it's just fabulous. Helps with digestion, I would say. From what I was reading, they're still growing the botanicals at the monastery that they infuse. And the monks, they hold on. They're the only ones who make it. It's not like they're uh, parceling it out to a third party here. They're actually making it. So the recipe is rather uh, held close. You know, not a lot of people know how to make this. Just the few monks yeah. that are there. Yeah, just the monks, really. They. It's not a recipe that they've shared with people outside of the monastery. Uh, they're the, the ones preparing it. Um, if you want to buy, uh, you have to ask them uh, if they can match up the production. They're not a... This is not a mass production. They're not. They they don't have a a unit, a huge unit with lots of people working in. No, it's still today uh, made by those monks. It's the end result of years of years of perfecting uh, the selection of botanicals that is used in that beverage, and definitely a secret of their own as well. Let's finally. Uh wind up the drinks with talking about one of the most important drinks to people in Portugal, and that's coffee. Um, one of the things, not only the great coffee in Portugal, but the magnificent coffee houses, the places where you can go to enjoy uh, coffee. You mentioned the Majestic Cafe, which is just a spectacular building to sit in, kind of expensive to order a coffee, but there are other ones as well. Talk about coffee culture in Porto. Yeah, coffee runs deep in our in our traditions. So we, it's coming from our colonial heritage, from um, Brazil, from São Tomé, East Timor, uh, Angola. Um, for us, I would even dare to say it's more than just a beverage. It's, it's a social enabler. It's a way of getting with your friends, just... I sometimes just call a friend of mine and if, if, if I feel like I want to be with them, I just say, hey, you know what, want to grab a cup of coffee? And they'll know that I just want to hang out or talk about something and it won't be a talk about coffee, definitely. <laughs> um, office day means that before stepping into your office, you'll go to the nearby bakery or cafe for a cup of coffee and a pastry. Halfway through the morning and afternoon, you'll reload your caffeine. Um, in a break with all of your coworkers. Actually, if you don't go uh, with your coworkers for a cup of coffee halfway through the morning and afternoon, you will be cast out, believe me. Oh no. Uh, <laughs> and look, we love coffee. Uh, I'll say that the vast majority of uh, what we have is, um, we drink it the Italian way, so espressos. But places like Majestic, uh, Guarani, are tremendous places for you to experience that. 
over the past few years, there have been a few specialty coffee rooms popping in the city with brewed coffee, infused coffee, cold brew, uh, with baristas uh, taking it to a completely new level. Places like Combi, uh, Calma, and Birth of Passage. They have a tremendous selection of coffee beans from all around the world. Um, and the quality of their coffee is just... I'm a coffee addict. I drink, uh, I don't even know, six, eight, ten cups of coffee a day. It really depends. Um, and, but I'm picky about my coffee. I don't drink it just anywhere, you know? So I look for the places that focus on quality. Uh, definitely that uh, old school ones like Guarani, um, I would definitely recommend. Uh, and then Combi, Bird of Passage, Calma, they're just tremendous. Yeah, Guarni is just amazing old school place to go. And we loved it there. And the coffee is excellent. But the surroundings make the coffee taste even better. You've got this just wonderful, almost Art Deco decoration. It's fantastic to uh, just hang there and enjoy an espresso slowly. <laughs> if you can drink uh, an espresso slowly. Andre... It's just been great to talk to you. I cannot recommend Porto highly enough because when we came back, I was just found myself talking the charms of Porto over and over again. And I think the best way to start your journey in Porto is to book a reservation with you for Taste Porto. You'll go to places that you had no idea about. So tell folks before we go, how to get in touch with you, how to reserve a food tour with Taste Porto. Um, easy. Uh, log on to our webpage, www.tasteporto.com, and you can choose from one of our three uh, available tours. We have the downtown, vintage, and now the craft beer and food tour. So we have a bit of everything for you, really. There's the, the downtown is a nice overview of what's happening in downtown Porto's gastronomy. Uh, vintage will take you deeper into Portuguese gastronomy and craft beer shows you how we're beer heritage, which is something that will go back to Roman time here in town. Andre Apolinario, thank you so much for talking with us. Thanks for being on Destination Eat Drink. Thank you so much, Brent. Okay, that's Andre Apolinario. I told you he was passionate about his hometown. If you want to know more about Porto and a day trip to the Duro Valley, go to DestinationEatDrink.com. There, I've got lots more places to eat, lots more places to drink, and tons of fun things to do in Porto that Andre and I just didn't have time to cover. Plus, I'll give you info on how to do a scenic day trip to the Duro Valley. That's going to do it for this week's show. Next week, if everything goes as planned, I'll be talking about Marrakesh, Morocco. What a cool adventure that'll be. Destination Eat Drink is distributed by the Prince of Dublin's Bar and Grill, Ed Silla, and the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. I'm Brent Peterson, and I will see you down the road. Join us next week for another culinary adventure on Destination Eat Drink, a presentation of the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. <laughs>